Good evening. Unrest in Tunisia. Stephen Donziger found guilty and the federal government continues a travel ban while mayor of New York says it's time to get faxed if you want to work for the city with these and other stories. Uh, I'm Paul Drianzo with the WBAI News for Monday, July 26, 2021. Tunisia's young democracy is in turmoil with nationwide protests over the economy and the government's handling of the pandemic. President Kai Saeed has suspended the legislature for 30 days and fired the prime minister and other top members of the government. Some demonstrators have cheered the firing, but others accuse the president of a power grab. Just a few hours ago, police raided the offices of broadcaster Al Jazeera and ordered it to shut down. Troops have surrounded Tunisia's parliament and blocked its speaker from entering. The speaker of the parliament has been sitting in his car on the street, surrounded by supporters. He calls it a coup. Saeed's supporters marched through the streets, meanwhile, of the capital, Tunis, celebrating while others blasted the government for botching the response to COVID. Police blocked the way to the city's main thoroughfare and used tear gas to break up the crowds, reminiscent of demonstrations against an autocratic ruler a decade ago that launched the Arab Spring. And Steve Donziger, the now disbarred lawyer who helped win a $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron in Ecuador, was found guilty on Monday of six misdemeanor counts of criminal contempt in the culmination of an unusual judge-ordered prosecution that began roughly two years ago. Rebecca Miles has the story. Stephen Donziger, the disbarred American lawyer who spent more than two decades fighting Chevron Corporation over oil pollution in the Ecuadorian rainforest, was found guilty on Monday of criminal contempt charges stemming from a lawsuit brought by the oil company. U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska wrote, It's time to pay the piper and ruled that Donziger repeatedly and willfully denied court orders, including by failing to turn over his electronic devices, phones and all his passports. The ruling followed a five-day trial heard in May without a jury. Martin Gerbus, a lawyer for Donziger, said he expected the decision to be reversed on appeal. The conviction by the judge was a certainty, Garbus wrote in an email. Donziger had previously said the charges violated his rights to due process under the U.S. Constitution. The contempt case is the latest twist in a long-running battle stemming from Donziger's representation of villagers in Ecuador's Lago Agrio region who sought to hold Chevron liable for water and soil contamination between 1964 and 1992. Chevron has said Texaco, which was acquired by Chevron, had cleaned up the pollution and state-owned Petro Ecuador was mainly responsible for the contamination. Donziger won in an Ecuadorian court in 2011, but the company sued, claiming he and his associates pressured the presiding judge in Ecuador. Donziger was ordered to turn over his electronic devices to the company's forensic experts. When he refused, the judge in the civil case charged him with criminal contempt. Donziger, who's been under house arrest for 650 days, said in a statement the verdict was the latest attempt by Chevron and its judicial allies to criminalize him. Presco has given the parties three days to set a schedule for sentencing. Rebecca Miles, WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. 
And Israel bombed targets in Gaza today. The IDF says it's in retaliation for incendiary balloons launched from Palestinian territory over the weekend. The bombing comes hours after Israel reduced the fishing zone in Gaza from 12 to 6 nautical miles. This additional retaliation reversed the previous decision to extend the zone, which was taken when the Israeli military escalation against Gaza culminated in May, leaving 260 Palestinians dead. On Sunday... Hamas said Israel had blocked 25 trucks loaded with fuel from Qatar. Gaza it was going to use that oil to power its only existing electric plant in the Palestinian territory. And the United States served notice Monday that it will keep existing COVID-19 restrictions on international travel in place for now due to concerns about the surging infection rate because of the Delta variant. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the restrictions would continue. With the Delta variant, we will maintain existing travel restrictions at this point for a few reasons. The more transmissible Delta variant is spreading both here and around the world. Driven by the Delta variant, cases are rising here at home, particularly among those who are unvaccinated and appear likely to continue in the weeks ahead. And to get to the other part of your question, the CDC just advised Americans against travel to the United Kingdom this past Monday, given the surge in cases. They will evaluate and make, and make recommendations based on health data. And that's Jen Psaki. The CDC advised Americans today against travel to the United Kingdom in particular because of a surge in cases there. And on Monday, the Department of Veterans Affairs became the first major federal agency to require its health workers to get COVID-19 vaccines. And over the weekend, U.S. health officials acknowledged they're considering changing the federal government's recommendations on wearing masks. President Joe Biden confirmed the decision today. I'll answer your question. Yes, Veteran Affairs is going to, in fact, require that all docs working in that and facilities are going to have to be vaccinated. Last week, U.S. health officials said the variant accounts for an estimated 83 percent of U.S. COVID-19 cases and noted a 32 percent increase in COVID hospitalizations from the previous week. And in more COVID news closer to home, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced today that New York City will require all municipal workers to either receive the COVID-19 vaccine before the reopening of schools in September or get tested weekly for the coronavirus. The decision comes as the daily number of new COVID-19 cases in the city continues to rise and as the Delta variant spreads infections through unvaccinated areas. On September 13th, the entire city workforce will be mandated under the COVID safety mandate to either get vaccinated, which is far preferable, or get tested once a week. September is the pivot point of the recovery. On September 13th, which is the first full day of school, every single city employee will be expected to be either vaccinated or be tested weekly. This means everybody. If you are unvaccinated and you are a city employee, beginning on Monday, you must either wear a mask indoors at your work site at all times, or if you would prefer not to, you have to immediately go get vaccinated. We will have to unfortunately be very tough If a city government employee does not wear a mask indoors and they are unvaccinated, there unfortunately will have to be consequences because we have to take seriously. If someone's unvaccinated, unfortunately, they pose a threat to themselves, but they also have a greater chance of spreading the disease. And that's the mayor. 
Last week, de Blasio announced a similar testing mandate for city health workers as he made the case for both public and private employers to adopt more stringent vaccination requirements. De Blasio added unvaccinated workers who refuse to wear a mask at their workstation will be asked to either immediately get vaccinated or leave work without pay. De Blasio said the city will accept paper vaccination cards and a new smartphone app as proof of vaccination. On August 2nd, we will debut the NYC COVID Safe app. And this app is simple and easy to use, allows you to keep track of vaccination or test results and have them available to show any employer or anyone else you need to. This is another tool. City workers, including teachers and police officers and many city employees, are supportive, although others are opposing. WBAI's Angela Palumbo has more. Michelle Weinberg-Roth has been a teacher in the New York City school system for 20 years. For the safety of others, she says she agrees with this new mandate. For me personally, it makes me feel safer as a teacher, also as a mom of, a, of two kids who are in city schools. I do believe that the adults should have it because they can also transfer it to the students. They can transfer and, and to vice versa. I think for me, the, my number one priority is safety safety for all and the hundreds of thousands of people who have now died from this disease we need to stop it it needs to be stopped and if that means that we have to have a mask mandate until this is under control and it's concentrated we need to do what we need to do to protect all human beings and since it's not available or as easily as accessible to certain areas we need to be more aware of that the New York City school system is the largest in the country. The new approach by the mayor comes as the city battles a rise in COVID cases fueled by the highly contagious Delta variant. In a statement, the UFT, the United Federation of Teachers, seems to agree with de Blasio's approach. They say vaccination and testing have helped keep schools among the safest places in the city. This approach puts the emphasis on vaccination, but still allows for personal choice and provides additional safeguards through regular testing. There are still many things to do before we are prepared to safely open our schools in September. On Twitter, many responded to de Blasio's announcement. Some say the restrictions are not strict enough. One says this is a start, but they should be tested twice a week and PCR only. Also, we need an indoor mask mandate to help slow the spread. Another says, not even close to enough. Just like in 2020, we are losing valuable time to get ahead of the virus, and it will cost many lives. Another wonders why the mask mandate should wait until next week. And there are concerns about the reliability of the vaccines. One says, even though I'm vaccinated, I support anyone who doesn't want to get vaccinated. It's not FDA approved, only EUA approved. That's emergency use authorization. Meanwhile, Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, tweets, Please get a vaccine. It can save your life. A radio host who regrets mocking vaccines is fighting for his life. Angela Palumbo, WBAI News, New York. And thanks for that, Angela. And in an aside, Mayor de Blasio took a moment to blast a group of Internet bloggers. He calls the disinformation dozen 12 people from a report first mentioned by President Biden last week as purveyors of 65 percent of anti-vaccination posts on social media. De Blasio says social media outlets should ban anti-vaccination propaganda. Listen to this shocking statistic from a report that just came out from the Center for Countering Digital Hate. 65% of the disinformation about COVID is spread on social media. That's striking enough, but here's the most striking part. It links back to 12 
prolific posters on social media. Twelve individuals. They are called the disinformation dozen. They are dangerous people who have caused endless harm. Now, these individuals are still at large. They are out there on these platforms at this hour of this day, literally depriving people of their lives by lying to them. It is unacceptable, and we have to stop it. So, today, New York City is calling on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to de-platform the disinformation doesn't take away their bully pulpit that is killing people. Stop them now. Kick them off your sites right now, completely, immediately. Mayor de Blasio. Meanwhile, the unions for both police detectives and firefighters signal their strong opposition to the proposed rule. Paul Giacomo, the president of the Detectives Endowment Association, said in a statement, this is not about politics, but about the personal rights of our members not to be forced in any way into making a decision based on a risk of punishment by the city. And Andrew Ansborough, the president of the Uniformed Firefighters Association, said at a news conference that his union is pro-vaccine, but we're also pro-choice. He added half the union's members were fully vaccinated. And over the weekend in Arizona, Former President Donald Trump claimed yet again he was the victim of voter fraud and should have won the election last November. The courts are going to do a lot. It's a big deal going on. That was total criminal behavior. So you hear those hundreds of thousands of votes. We won the state of Arizona. Today, Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York had a fighting rejoinder for Trump from the House floor. Is anyone else tired of hearing the insurrectionist-in-chief continue to lie about the 2020 election? Over the weekend, once again, the former twice-impeached, disgraced, so-called president of the United States of America falsely claimed that he actually won the election and that it was stolen from Joe Biden. Something is really wrong with this guy. And I need some help in trying to figure it out. Is Donald Trump, A, a pathological liar, B, a sociopath, C, a malignant narcissist, or D, all of the above? I'll be around all week. Look forward to hearing from you. Although Trump has no chance of returning to the White House through legal action, his false claims of a stolen election have prompted red states across the nation to pass a slew of laws using his claims as a front for voter suppression. And in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo projected confidence today that he'll ultimately be exonerated of allegations of sexual harassment. But he also questioned the neutrality of the lawyers hired to investigate his behavior. Speaking at his first news conference in nearly two weeks, Cuomo said he had concerns concerns as to the independence of the reviewers hired by State Attorney General Letitia James. In general, with the AG's review, let the process continue. Let the facts come out. I'm very eager to get the facts to the people of this state. And I think when they hear the actual facts of what happened and how the situation has been handled, I think they're going to be shocked shocked. I believe in New Yorkers. I am a lifelong New Yorker. I know New Yorkers. They are not naive. They know what's going on. They know what these reviews entail and who's involved 
And when they get the facts, I am very confident that they will be shocked at what they have heard about this versus what they know about it. And James appointed Joan Kim, the former acting June Kim, pardon me, the former acting U.S. attorney for Manhattan and the employment discrimination attorney Ann Clark to conduct the probe. The lawyers have spent months now speaking to women who say Cuomo subjected them to inappropriate kisses and touching or inappropriate sexual remarks. One woman, an aide to Cuomo, has said he groped her breasts. And in local news, a garden on a piece of land in lower Manhattan that can be traced to the early 19th century was transformed in the 1970s and 80s into a community garden developed by an eccentric artist who leased it from the city for years. Then residents discovered the city wants to build low-income housing development on the site, and they organized against the project in direct opposition to their council member, Margaret Chin. They say they're not NIMBY, but they're opposed to YIMBY, those who say yes in our backyards. Joseph Reaver is director of the Elizabeth Street Garden. It was originally part of a school through the 1800s and 1900s, and then the lot, the zoning was severed, and they built affordable housing where the school once was, and they promised the land that eventually would become the garden to be public recreational space. That was never followed through, and the lot was left to be empty and blighted from the 70s to 1990. My father then came, leased the land on a month-to-month lease, and built the basis of the garden. When he moved his gallery next door in 2005, it was first opened to the public through the gallery. And then in 2013, when the community found out about the city's plans to develop it, Everyone got together and said, how can we make the space more accessible, show its true potential, and fight to preserve it? We went through the land use process. We're now in court, and we're awaiting decision from the judge. One of the criticisms has been that, in general, this attitude is sort of a not in my backyard, that New York City (laughs) faces this critical housing shortage, and we have to use everything we can and increase the density as much as possible, and that would solve the problem. This nimbyism, yimbyism is really used to kind of pigeonhole anyone who's against any kind of development that these groups want. The garden is the backyard for many people who live in affordable housing. And this is Little Italy. It's not Soho. It's really important to make that distinction because all these kind of arrogant, hipster-looking yimbies that come around, they're not from here. They don't know the neighborhood so well because they're calling it Soho. They don't know that there's already protective zoning in Little Italy, so they can't build an 80-story building for uh, apartments. To say it's nimbyism is to kind of write off the whole idea that the community has actually put forth an alternative that achieves way more housing because they could build up to five times the amount of housing on this other lot, and it preserves community green space. Can you explain to me why there's so little the representatives, the city council people who are in these districts almost always seem to be representing somebody different than the people who live there? Our city council person had never been to the garden. She never has been to the garden. She never visited it. She refused to visit it. For many years, she referred to it as a vacant storage lot. Only after we started showing that it wasn't that did she start saying, right, right, it's beautiful, but we still need housing. And she focuses on the general aspects of housing in the city. This would be low-income housing for seniors. It's just not permanently affordable. And without that commitment to, to it being permanent, there's a lot of questions, at least. What do they mean by not permanent? A lot of affordable housing developments in New York City have expiration dates on the affordability. And they could then transition to market rate in time. 
whether this is 30 years, 40 years, 60 years is a question of each development. It's a partnership. Penrose is the leading developer and they build housing and prisons. They're Boston based. And then Habitat NYC and Rise Borough are the partner developers and Habitat NYC has really taken on like the PR front. They've kind of become the face of this development. They're also getting 11,200 square feet of office space in the development that they try to twist as a quote-unquote community facility, even though it will be their office space. We definitely want to talk about how we want to save the garden, which is as a conservation land trust. The city could convey the land to the nonprofit, where the nonprofit would in turn continue everything we're doing now in terms of operating the space as a public community garden, and we would do so owning the land. So the nonprofit would own the land. We can operate it as such with the understanding that it would be preserved in perpetuity as a community garden. And what's amazing about this is, one, we'd be able to preserve all of the unique qualities of the garden, like the statuary, the community involvement. All of this could be offered at no expense to the city. The city would not have to spend a single dollar on having this public amenity open to the public, operating with free programs, and having over 100,000 visitors every year. Everything is based on what the courts rule. But after that, we want to have that discussion. And basically, we're putting forth this plan because we want the community, the city, to see that there are alternatives. This alternative actually achieves more housing than the other alternative. This is a future that is possible. If people are interested, they can go to elizabethstreetgarden.com. Joseph Reaver is director of the Elizabeth Street Garden. And finally, first the sun now the wind and the rain. The Tokyo Olympics, delayed by the pandemic and opened under oppressive heat, are due for another hit of nature's power. A typhoon arriving tomorrow morning, and it's forecast to disrupt at least some parts of the games. It feels like we're trying to prepare for bloody everything, said New Zealand Rugby Sevens player Andrew Newstub. Don't worry, Japanese hosts say. In U.S. terms, the incoming weather is just a mid-grade tropical storm, and the surface is Suragoski Beach, say tropical storm Nepartak could actually improve the competition so long as it doesn't hit the beach directly. But archery, rowing, and sailing have already adjusted their Tuesday schedules. Tokyo Games spokesperson Masa Takaye says there were no other changes expected. And that's some of the news for Monday, July 26, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>